Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 889. On this edition of the podcast, Jay Jaffe and Dan Zimborski continue their conversation from last week, this time discussing Jose Altuve. It's been an eventful couple of years since he won the AL MVP award in 2017, and the Astros' second baseman is heading into the playoffs after struggling through a difficult regular season. Jay and Dan go over Altuve's legacy, as well as what the projection systems think of his future. What kind of odds do you give him on getting back to being an MVP caliber player? Well, Zips isn't super stoked on his odds. I'm shocked. <laughs> it's it's not predicting doom and gloom. It's still projecting him to be a three-win player. But being a three-win player is, you know, below his, his peak. Right. Considerably. Following that, Eric Longenhagen sits down with Jason Martinez to talk about some players who were unknown six months ago that have certainly arrived on fans' radars by now. Finally, they look ahead to the first round of the 16-team playoff bracket, and they go ahead and make some educated guesses on wildcard series results. First, I got to tell you here, I'll, I'll remind you in case you didn't know this, Eric, I was the only staff member who had 100% in last year's staff predictions for, wow. for the playoffs, man. So that means I'm going to be really bad this year. But... <laughs> I was good last year. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by all of the Fangraphs readers and supporters. It is true. We could not do this without you. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Welcome back. I'm Jay Jaffe, senior writer for Fangraphs. In our last podcast segment, we started a conversation about the Hall of Fame chances of Justin Verlander and Jose Altuve and the impact of their recent injuries on their Hall of Fame cases. I was talking to my fellow Fangraph senior writer, Dan Zimborski, who had provided some Zips projections for a couple of recent articles, one by me on Verlander, one by Dan on Altuve. As so often is the case, we had plenty to talk about on the first of those guys. And so now we decided that it would be best to, to table the Altuve discussion to our second segment. So here we are. We're recording this a few days before the end of the regular season here. And Altuve, is, uh, who turned 30 in May, is in the midst of a dreadful campaign batting 215, 282, 314 with three homers and minus 0.1 war. That after a pair of solid but injury-shortened seasons in which he missed about 60 games due to injuries. Dan, first of all, welcome. Hi, Jay. <laughs> How's it going today? <laughs> it's, it's good. It's good. Always good to talk baseball here. You took a pretty deep dive into his performance in your Fangraphs piece from September 18th as far as uh, the StatCast stuff was concerned with analyses of you know his, his strike zone coverage and bad ball hitting and launch angles. And uh, Can you tell us about what you found there? Well, I guess the executive summary is that Altuve's been a mess this year. He's always been one of the best bad ball hitters, but he's pretty much doing all his damage, hitting poor pitches, and he's hitting them inconsistently. Last month, Alex Chamberlain discussed Altuve's launch angle tightness and how it had been inconsistent in 2019 and in the first few weeks of 2020. That has, that has persisted throughout 2020. He's just become a very inconsistent hitter. And that's surprising from Altuve, who, when you talk, say, from 2014 to 2018, you'd probably think of as one of the most consistent hitters in, in, in baseball. Really, there's just not a lot of good to salvage from this season. He's not actually... His exit velocities aren't down or anything. He's just not approaching the plate very well. And it, it, it's concerning, and obviously he's been on a much more powerful microscope than many other stars would be, for reasons we'll probably go into. But this has been a year to forget for him. Yeah. Dan, can you talk just a little bit more about launch angle tightness? I know you're citing Alex Chamberlain's work. I will freely admit that I have not actually done the reading for that part. So you're going to have to give me a little bit more of a summary of what you mean by that. And I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who, who aren't necessarily familiar with, with that term either. Well, it, it's, it's still concept kind of new in, in examination. But what Alex found was that, generally speaking, it was better to have more consistent launch, launch angle tightness than looser. What it means is that the standard deviation of the launch angles for balls hit is smaller when it's tight and, and larger when it's not. And that when you see players with, with, with tight launch angles, they tend to be more consistent. And Altuve went, went from being one of the most consistent players in this to one of the least consistent players. And what that means is he's making, I guess the best way to say is different kinds of contact that may not actually be intended. And 
that 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 could be that could be a problem for a guy who relies on batting average. He sure. does hit for power, but when you're hitting, you know, 330, 340, he's led the league three times, a lot of your value is going to come from batting average. Right. That makes sense. And you know, when you think about the inconsistencies he's had, I know that a lot of it probably has to do with the lower half injuries that he's been dealing with. Last year he had uh, hamstring problems. This year he's had a knee problem. You know, when when your foundation isn't as solid, you just can't do the same things as a hitter. And I think that, that that's pretty universal for players. So, you know, it makes sense that we would see uh, a different pattern of performance. And for Altuve, who, like you said, is very batting average driven, it's really caused uh, just a complete collapse of his slash line. I haven't gone back and looked at see what, you know, things like his average fly ball distance are or uh, hard hit rates or, or, or things like that. But uh, uh, you look at those numbers and they're grim and they're just, you know, the out of context with what we expect out of Altuve. What I tend to think about uh, when we talk about Altuve and, and his and his legs, I think of Jose Offerman, who declined very, very quickly once he took his legs out from under him. And that's kind of the, I guess, the worst case scenario for Altuve. Altuve is obviously a better hitter than Jose Offerman was. But Jose Offerman went from a pretty significant contributor to out of the league really as soon as his knee started being a problem. And that's just in the back of my head when we talk about Altuve. Right. That's that's an interesting point, and I'm going to get to stuff like that shortly here. But we'll uh, we'll we'll keep going here. I've got my list of questions, and I'm sticking to them. Um, <laughs> so, what do you what do you see in the in the near term for Altuve? When you forecast for 2021, what kind of odds do you give him on getting back to being an MVP caliber player? Well, Zips isn't super stoked on his odds. I'm shocked. <laughs> it's it's not predicting doom and gloom. It's still projecting him to be a three-win player. But being a three-win player is, you know, below his his peak. Right. Considerably. It projects him as, you know, a guy who hits in the 280s with 20 home runs. I mean, a good player, but there's enough uncertainty about about. 2020 and the injuries that you you have to kind of move your your shift over i usually uh compare projections to almost hurricane projections because they do kind of the same thing you see the little hurricane graphic and that cone that comes out Mm -hmm. and every time the hurricane shifts that whole big cone moves a different direction and his cone has has gone in a negative way it's it's aiming more for florida than it was before Oh boy. <laughs> I got it. So that all makes sense that we'd see some kind of downturn and, and uh, you know, a three win player. I mean, when you think about what, what he's done over the last couple of years, I think it's sort of prepared us to accept that, you know, he was, uh, was at least you know, by the fan graphs wars. Yeah. It's th- like three, three, four wins. We're not seeing the five, the five to seven win seasons that, you know, kind of typified his peak. And I guess it's not that surprising because uh, uh, he's now 30. As an aside though, when it comes to projections, I got asked this in my in my chat last week, but how do you weight this season when it comes to projections for position players? I imagine, you know, I'm thinking to, you know, what I know about, like, say, Marcel the monkey, the easiest projection when you're using like a 5-4-3 weighting system or a 5-3-1 weighting system for like the past three seasons. What you've got, we've got a season that's 37% as long as uh, a typical season. How do you how do you weight this and when you're doing these? Hopefully not poorly. I, I say that laughing, but it's it's a difficult situation because my projections and you know everyone's projections are based on what we know from baseball history. Because right. we don't have experimental data on baseball history. You can't put a guy in a test tube and have him play a million years. Everything we know about how players age is based on how players have aged or how players have grown or progressed. We don't have that for 2020, and we've never had a season quite like this one. World War II, I imagine the projections would also be difficult. But it wasn't from a baseball standpoint, you still had normal seasons, more or less, with with worse players. Now we just have a season of 60 games, not not 110, not 145, but but 60. And that's with the oddity of having essentially, you know, a a nine month spring training in, in a sense. So it's 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 tricky to guess the approach that I'm taking that I think will have the best outlook is to kind of fill in the season with like their rest of season projection if if this were just 60 games in a 162 game season but the the unfortunate thing is I'm not going to know what the best approach to dealing right. with with 2020 is until like 2023 and I <laughs> don't think that people will be happy if I delayed my 2021 projections <laughs> until then 
Yeah, I can see I can see that being a problem, but you know, then again, you're They'd be very accurate though. Yeah, I bet not, I can hit everyone. Yeah. You're not alone among the among the uh the small fraternity of projectionists in terms of being in uncharted territory. It's a scary place to be. Yeah, getting back to those projections. As we speak here, Altuve has 1605 hits as he nears the end of his age 30 season. He's about 9 wins shy of the peak standard among second basemen in, uh, in my jaws system uh, and about 33 wins shy on the career standard, so almost he's only about halfway there that in that regard. So about 21 points of jaws would not in my eyes be a Hall of Famer if he retired today. With your projections, what was what is his longer term outlook look like as far as where he finishes with war and hits, which I think will be the two driving forces of, of whatever Hall of Fame case he has. Well, well, coming into the season, Zip still gave him another 17 wins remaining, still had him around 2,700 hits, just under a coin flip to pass the 3,000 hit mark. And with the uncertainty, that's down to somewhere between 23, 2,400 hits, only a 20% chance of reaching 3,000 hits. And War, which is 10 or 11, uh, which won't really cut it in terms of Hall of Fame right. induction, especially as we're going to discuss, I'm sure, the trash cans. Yeah. Well, before we get there, you know, he had, like like I said, he he missed time due to injuries in 2018 and 2019, about 60 games. Have you seen his odds go down noticeably because of that missed time, or is he still banking enough hits? Did he bank enough hits in those to at least kind of stay in place? He, he was basically maintaining par. Uh, okay. Because Zips does not assume that a player is going to be healthy. Zips, you know, actually takes a fairly bleak look because – for any star player, the risk is kind of one-sided. There are a lot more things that will make them play much worse than much better because I guess you can call it the Madden curse, regression to the mean, the Sports mm. Illustrated cover jinx. It's all kind of the same thing. So Zips never assumes perfect health, and so it expected that Altuve would, would miss some time over the years. I think the, the, the decline in actual play, is it's, it's a much more serious hit right. to his odds, even in a weird season like this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So bigger picture, in recent years, we've seen a handful of Hall of Fame cases for second baseman kind of peter out, fall by the wayside, whatever you want to say. Uh, Chase Utley and, and Ian Kinsler retired, both of them short of 2,000 hits, which has become the, the line in the sand for voters. Nobody from the post-expansion era has gotten in with fewer than 2,000 hits, either be the writers or the or the committees. Dustin Pedroia, basically in the same boat. He hasn't officially retired, but uh, he's, he's cooked based on his... Uh, uh, ongoing knee issues. And then Robinson Cano, the guy who is going to hit, hit the milestones, got suspended for PED usage. Are there any guys from that group that you'd vote for once you get a Hall of Fame ballot? I would absolutely vote for Utley. I'm certainly voting for Cano. I tend to take a, a rule-breaking approach to PED use. And if Cano had, if he were on the border, I can see that as being consistent with the, with the morals and standards clause. I can see that pushing him on one side or the other, but Cano's safely over my line to the degree that it won't make a difference to me. Mm -hmm. It will make a difference to a lot of other writers, yes. but but yeah. not me, so to speak. Utley, I think, I think he's clearly in. Kinsler and Pedroia are kind of on my borderline. I'd really have to sit and ponder. I'll probably change my mind about 15 times before I actually have to make a decision. Uh, they, they, they are considerably tougher, I think. Yeah, I think for for me, Utley is a clear yes. Uh, he is uh, 11th in Jaws and well above the peak standard by about five wins. And uh, uh, when you think about the fact that he got a, uh, a late start to his career because the Phillies kind of mismanaged him, you know, and retired just shy of 2,000 hits. I mean, the you know, the, he got screwed out of awards, particularly the, the, the MVP, the year that Brian Howard and, and the years that Brian Howard and, and Jimmy Rollins were winning. But he was part of a championship team. He had fantastic postseason numbers. But yeah, he's he's a yes for me. Kinsler and Pedroia just ah, didn't quite make it there. I'm I'm you know I, I I think both had they stuck around long enough probably would have convinced me, especially Pedroia because of his role in, uh, in multiple championships for the for the Red Sox. But I think both are both are a little bit below my line, even though they are top twenty in Jaws. Cano. By the standards that I've used on my virtual ballots and, and will on my actual ballot starting uh, when I get it this winter, Cano would be a no for me because anybody who's caught during the testing and penalty phase is is a no for me. I might come around to, to that eventually for guys like 
Manny Ramirez and, and Alex Rodriguez or, or whoever. But right now, that's the line. That's the line that I've drawn, which which means that uh, I, I'm a yes on Barry Bonds. I'm a yes on Roger Clemens. I'm a yes on anybody who's implicated by the survey test or by Balco, but otherwise has the credentials. Gary Sheffield is probably the, the next one uh, on that list. You know, going by Jaws, Sheffield's a little short. Sammy Sosa's a little short. I'm a little bit more lukewarm on those guys, but but it's not the PEDs that would that would keep me from voting for them. But Cano getting nailed when you when you know what the consequences are, I think is is a different issue. And you know, and I'll be honest, that's that line is one that I think when I started using it in my uh, virtual ballot deliberations got a lot of attention. I mean, you know, Peter Gammons himself was talking about it on TV, which you know, I think we all know that that's that's pretty cool when that happens. So. Anyway, I don't know if, if, if you've ever experienced that. But, uh. Yeah, he's never, when Peter Gammons tweeted something I did, I was, I was pretty excited. Sure, exactly, exactly. You know, it's the, 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 the Peter Gammons signal boost is, is one that a lot of us have experienced over the years. So getting back to the second baseman and, and projections, why does it seem that they're so prone to flaming out in, in, in their mid-30s? And I say that because I seem to recall back when Pakoda was still the shiny new toy and Nate Silver was you know, a fairly obscure baseball geek instead of a nationally known elections pundit. He did some work on position-by-position position aging curves and showed that second baseman had relatively short career expectancies. I know one of the classic theories is that they're most likely to be injured on a double play. I don't right. actually have data for that because I don't think anyone's tracked injuries on double plays. One theory I have is that a shortstop declining defensively can play second base, but a second baseman declining defensively may not hit enough to play third base. Right. That I makes sense. I don't know if there's something to that, but I try to think of... There haven't been a lot of second basemen off the top of my head. I could just be forgetting a lot of people. I It doesn't seem like there's a lot of second basemen who decline and end up playing third base. I mean, a few do, but it seems more likely they just kind of retire. Well, some of them, some of them do move to first base. I know Jeff Kent was playing first base by the end. Utley dabbled in first base. I'm trying to think who else here. Yeah, for third base, though, a lot of the time, a lot of reasons sometimes these guys are playing second is because they don't have strong arms. Right. And while shortstop has the deepest throw of anybody, third baseman still have longer throws than second right. baseman. Right, so, Yeah, so that could be one of the reasons why, if, if my theory is right, which I can't back up with anything mm. but vigorous assertion. Well, Craig Biggio is another example. I mean, he granted he moved so that Jeff Kent could play second base at, at first, but I'm trying to remember. I think I, if I'm remembering, his defense at second base had gotten shakier over the years as well. So it wasn't, but you know, then he didn't have enough bat for the outfield. Yeah, and then they moved him back to second at the end, and he really didn't have enough glove at that point. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, I'm pulling up his numbers on baseball references as we speak here. And from 2001 onward, he was, which was the last two years of, of him at second base before moving for Kent, and then three years of second base at the end, and he was a combined minus 79 runs there. I think we're moving into defensive runs saved by 2002 or 2003 in there, so you got some monster double-digit negatives there that prevent him from attaining the Jaws standard at second base, even though he had some nice career numbers, 3,000 hits and almost 300 home runs and, and you know, career by, I think, that meets the, the yardsticks for the Hall of Fame by, by traditional notions. But yeah, that's it's, it's an interesting thing, and, and I, I thought that myself that, you know, positional skills and the defensive spectrum might be something that, that that plays into that yeah and biggio of course had one of the more unusual progressions i mean you don't see a lot of people starting off as a catcher becoming a catcher center fielder then becoming a second baseman for a right. decade back to center field then a second baseman yeah no that and that's another thing actually when i when i do say that about you know and, and i don't want to sound like i'm, I'm slagging him when i do say that about about Biggio, you know, falling short of the Jaws standard. I do remember now that when I did something about him uh, when he was eligible, first eligible in 2013, you know, that if you if you factor in the fact that that he was constrained in terms of somewhat in terms of playing time by his catching, although he was he was still he got 500 plate appearances in one year, uh, 600 plus in, in a couple other years, not that constrained. But if you if you consider that uh, you know he was getting 750 in some years almost. Yeah, he was miss he was missing a bit of time. But when you and when you sort of blend like, well, he's a he's a you know a catcher for fifteen percent of his career or whatever it was, a second baseman for this amount of his career, he starts he starts to look just fine when you use like kind of what I would call a modified Jaws standard based on 
uh, his particularly unique blend of positions. But getting back to Altuve, uh, another Astros second baseman, where does he have to get to for you to consider him for the Hall of Fame, leaving aside the peripheral questions that obviously lurk in the shadows here? The question, of course, is is if we can put that question aside. It's 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 a big matzo ball, essentially, that we have to address <laughs> at some point. I love that because it, it's not going away, and no matter how you feel about him, you know, it's going to be something that's talked about for the rest of his career. And I think, given his position on the Astros, his Hall of Fame candidacy, I think he's the player who's going to get the biggest brunt of the consequences of the trash can stuff. Than, than any other player on the team. Alex Bregman is still very young. Mm-hmm. I can't see how he's, he's going to be around, you know, if, if he develops a Hall of Fame career, he's going to be around, you know, 15 years at least at this point. Uh, someone like George Springer isn't necessarily going to be in the Hall of Fame conversation. Correa has been injured so much, that kind of overshadows everything. Altuve is going to be, you know, the poster child. I, I do think that... At his current projection, I would not vote him for the Hall of Fame, but I personally don't see the cheating, and that's what it is, as a binary question in a way. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on how borderline he is, how much we how we feel about it when we look back at it in a, in a historical context. I don't think that the Altuve that is projected right now would get my vote, and I think the one I projected at the start of the season probably would get my vote. I think that's where he was around the line. So it'll be interesting to see how how writers approach this question because it's going to be a you know a different group of writers because you know Altuve is probably not going to be eligible for Hall of Fame induction for you know twelve to fifteen years. Right, right. Yeah, that's I, that's an interesting point. I think I think I, I, I'm with you there. He probably would not. He he, he certainly wouldn't get my my uh, uh, vote if he were to obviously continue his decline. He's going to fall way short of of, of, the, of the standards. And, you know, I think the sign-stealing thing, I think the big problem for me is that right now, the coming to light of the sign-stealing issue looks like a point of inflection in his career, you know, as much as the injuries do. And fairly or unfairly, he has put himself in that position that people are going to talk about it. Because, you know, while he is, you know, alleged you know, based on the studies that others have done to not have used the trash can system to the extent that some other players did. You know, we've heard anecdotes to the effect that he didn't want that information and that he was just fine. There are the wild rumors about last year's ALCS winning home run, you know, the buzzer system, the weird tattoo story and his explanations and his apologies for the tattoo and for his whole connection to the saga have all kind of seemed half-baked. But this is something I wanted to get to when we spoke about Verlander before, you know, and, and Verlander has, I think, uh, you know, kind of an interesting, you know, arc to this in that he was very outspoken about electronic sign stealing when he was with the Tigers, but he really clammed up once this stuff came to light and he was on the Astros. So for both of these guys, does, does their connection to this, you know, is how much is that is that going to weigh in? You, you, obviously, I guess you said so as far as Altuve, that it's going to have an impact on the borderline. Does it have any impact on what you thought of Verlander, a guy who you, I think at this point, if I could summarize, say, you know, feel like is a slam dunk? It doesn't really for me. I'm unhappy about it, and it affects from a from a moral standpoint. But I don't consider it the same as say Cano's usage right. of PEDs because you and I, we have even if we have like different consequences for our vote, we're probably one of the few exceptions that have a very kind of legalistic approach to the cheating. That it's the act of breaking the rule that's the cheating, which is why we consider you know Bonds in a different light right. than we consider Cano. If anything, it would be Bonds and Fetamine bust that would make me look at him a little askance. So I I don't quite consider it the same thing because it wasn't explicitly as banned mm-hmm. as steroids. I know that's, that, that seems like I'm cutting, like I'm splitting hairs a bit, but it was something that wasn't, it was in that teams were warned and MLB never really sat down with the players union and said, we need to discuss some kind of discipline for this, some kind of rule. So it kind of was in the margins, so to speak. I do consider it a negative, but I don't know if it's just explicitly a rule breaking in the same way. I, I don't like it, but it's kind of different in PEDs in that respect. Right. And it's interesting when you talked about how we consider players when you talk about an inflection point for for the sign stealing is that people tend to believe what happens after a player is caught cheating affects the efficacy of that cheating. 
uh, like Altuve declined, so it must have been the trash right. can. But right. Nelson Cruz keeps hitting home runs after his PED bust, and so nobody considers him as being helped by PEDs for some reason. So it's it's interesting the way, I guess, culturally, in a sense, that, that cheating is considered in baseball. Right. That's an interesting point. I mean, yeah, it, you know, I guess people don't, you know, don't stop to consider that these drugs may have had longer term effects and, and, you know, which is a fair point when you're arguing against even a Bonds or a Manny or, or you know, whomever, you know, Nelson Cruz. But it's it's a little tangential to, to where I want to go with this, and which is uh, especially since we're probably uh, reaching our pitch count here, so to speak. With Altuve's decline, with, with Verlander's absence, and with all the free agents they've got coming up this winter, which includes George Springer, most notably, and uh, uh, a rotation that uh, obviously looked like it was at least a man down coming into this year. Do you think the Astros' window of contention is closing now? Uh, well, it depends if we have a 16-team playoff or something. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I don't want to think about that today. That That's a darker Ugh. topic for another yeah, time. That's, yes, I, I will need to be drinking alcohol if we're, if we're talking <laughs> about that one. I, I, I would be very worried about the Astros because they have bled off a lot of pitching depth. It, it says a lot about how good you are when you're still competitive after losing a lot of pictures. I mean, Charlie Morton was a Cy Young candidate last year and, and right. he, and he was gone there. They've lost a, I mean, Garrett Cole's gone now. Verlander, they, they've lost just a lot of dudes in, in the rotation. And I don't know if they can really patch up the, that, just the number of holes that they have. Uh, they, they do have older players. They, they have Michael Brantley, who's been big, but he's also 33. He's not signed forever. Yeah. I think Brantley's also a free agent too. Yes. Yeah. So they don't, they, they have to, even bringing him back for, you know, another contract may not be that effective because he's not a young player. Right. If you look at the long term, they have, you know, Kyle Tucker, Alex Bregman, some interesting pictures. But I don't think that really they're the best team in the AL West when we look at 2021. I certainly I don't think they are right now. So I, I think to an extent that their window has has gotten down to a little crack. Yeah. Well, as we as we speak here, we are still a few days away from the end of the regular season and the start of the wild card series round. So we may have to go back and uh, revisit what we've said about the Astros here before before this podcast reaches you, the listener. But for now, I think we've reached our pitch count. So once again, I want to thank Dan for this conversation. Dan, the sweat swimmingly. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We had fun. <laughs> yeah, good times. And uh, we'll do this again. Thank you all for listening. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. It is a sunny fall afternoon where I am here. This is Eric Longenhagen. And joining me is, in San Diego, I assume, is roster resource guru Jason Martinez. Jason, how's it going? Very well. I am in San Diego. It is also warm and sunny. And the regular season is, is over where we both are all around the country. Regular season is over, and we're about to get get crazy with these uh, sixteen team playoffs. Did you whip around today? Were you, did you like? Were you all over MLB TV today? No, I had a pretty busy morning. There was a few roster moves this morning, so you know, I I got all the lineups in. I cleaned things up as much as possible, and then then I you know I, I wasn't I was just following along on my phone. I get the updates. Yeah. I kind of know what's going on, but at this point, it's just. You know, we kind of knew who was going to be in. You know, you know, I just figured once this is over, I just, I'm going to look at the the brackets and and then we'll go from there. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a Padres fan, and so the excitement of, of of that of the Padres finally getting back to the to the postseason was over a few days ago or a week ago or whenever it was. And so, yeah, so I'm just I'm anticipating having my team in the playoffs for the first time in in 14 years, uh, the first time since. I, since I started Roster Resource, which is it was in 2009, oh. and so it's it's a, it's a different different kind of feel. I'm I'm usually just like I can't wait until the off season. Cool, the playoffs are here, but like uh, I'm I'm thinking ahead. I can't wait for to see what my team does. I'm gonna start stripping down these rosters, and I can't wait for the playoffs to be over so I can start putting everything back together again. So uh, a little bit different vibe with my team in there now. Jason and I are going to go through the first round playoff matchups towards the end of the segment and pick winners. And you'll be able to see all of the entire Fangraph staff postseason predictions on the site on Monday, I believe. But first, what we're going to do is talk through some of the breakout players from the course of the two-month 2020 season. Jason, 
based on what he does for the site over on the roster resource tab, which is like, in my opinion, the most indispensable resource on the site. Jason's constantly following all 30 teams' rosters, including during spring training when the active rosters are starting to crystallize. And so rather than talk through some of the players who broke out and became stars, what we want to talk about today before we get to our first round playoff picks are a few players who came out of absolutely nowhere, who were not on the radar for like a roster spot period and now seem to have solidified themselves as like long-term big leaguers for teams, you know, contenders and and otherwise. So uh, we're going to touch on some of those guys now. Jason, you, your list is like about 10 players long. Who is at the top of it? Who like inspired you to think about talking about this on the pod? So let me start with with uh, kind of explaining how this this yeah. works. And so this was my my segment idea, and I'm glad that I have you to, to talk talk about this with. And so here you go. Like in the in the in spring training, I'm always on a, a few podcasts, and I always get that question of who's going to be the breakout star, who's the guy you know, that we should know. And and I never really have a good answer. I think for what I do, I'm just like I'm all I'm constantly on top of this stuff. Like from the you know from the beginning of the off season, I'm like I kind of you know I kind of know who I I don't really think of like breakout players as somebody I, I don't know who the the mainstream baseball fans are thinking of as or not, or not thinking of, and so I really never have a good answer. But I always say, well, this is what I do know. There are a bunch of players who nobody is talking about, nobody's even thinking about right now. And six months from now, everybody's going to know who this player is. They're going to be penciled into a lineup spot, into the rotation, into a late-inning bullpen role next season. And so so what I've done is I've picked out 10 players who fit that, that profile. And so my first player, I'm going to start with a player from my team. It's Jake Cronenworth who is now the second baseman of the San Diego Padres for the, the foreseeable future. And so uh, if, if we go back to spring training, and actually we can go back a little bit further to when they acquired Cronenworth. And he came over from the Rays in the, in the trade that sent Hunter Renfro and uh, Xavier Edwards and a player to be named later who was uh, Esteban Quiroz, second base prospect, to the Rays for Tommy Pham and Jake Cronenworth. And I'll tell you, as, as a Padres fan, and I think what a lot of Padres fans, I'm guessing, were, were saying the same thing, especially the ones who follow the team closely, were, were okay, I'll take Tommy Pham over Hunter Renfro, but you get four years of Hunter Renfro, we get two years of Tommy Pham. Why are we giving you Xavier Edwards? Right. Why? And and so you're getting this Jake Cronenworth guy back, and it seems like, oh, he's you know he's versatile, he can pitch. Oh, that's pretty cool. He can also be a pitcher. You know, that was kind of like the. The thing we we heard about Jake right, he was a novelty. He's a novelty, like, and then and then when the new rules were announced, it's like this guy isn't even going to be able to pitch because he won't qualify as a two way player. So he was not really a guy we were looking at as oh, this guy's going to be a big part of our of our 2020 team. It was like maybe he's going to help on the bench at some point, and that's how we started the season as well. And it wasn't until. Eric Hosmer had some stomach issues early on. We needed a first baseman and just plug Cronenworth in. And that's when you first started to see like, wow, this guy can play a little bit. And little by little, it was like, yeah, this guy's not getting out of the lineup anymore. Right. So just leave him at second base. I mean, he, he was a guy who who was considered a prospect. In that Ray system, you can get buried. But what, what, were, what was Cronenworth's profile with the Rays? Yeah, it's the stretch during which he was undervalued was at the end of college. Like there's no way this guy should have lasted until the seventh round. I actually preferred him on the mound coming out of Michigan as like a, you know, mid nineties breaking ball reliever. But yeah, like I 45 Cronenworth. It's like you mentioned the bench role. Like I had him projected as a super utility type. There are all sorts of favorable roster building traits here. It's like bats left, throws right, can play all over the infield and has performed all the way up the minor league ladder. And you're right, like this this is the type of guy who typically gets lost in the shuffle in that Rays org. Like they just grow guys like this who can play a couple different positions and hit. And they've just made choices over the last couple of years that and some of it's due to the 40 man pressure that's been put on by the fact that their farm system is so deep. But they've kept Michael Brasso and they've kept, you know, Joey Wendell. Like, these are the types of players who the Rays just sort of seem to have a garden of. 
And uh, yeah, Cronenworth, I don't know if he was expendable. Clearly, he's about to be probably the NL Rookie of the Year. And if not, the other guy who I think has the argument is, is further down your list. But yeah, he's at this point, the way he has performed with the stick means that this guy just belongs in the lineup, whether it's second base, third base, like left field, it doesn't really matter. I think his defensive flexibility is really going to help them going forward. It just enables you to call up whoever your best guy at AAA is because Jake Cronenworth, if someone gets hurt, Jake Cronenworth can just play there and you can just plug up behind him with whoever you think is the best. So so yeah, I think he's he's fantastic. He came into the year as the Padres' ninth-ranked prospect, as I said, as a 45 future value, which is the grade I stick on the the utility-type guys who are ready, good fourth outfielders, that type of thing. The larger half of the platoons, like Matt Joyce is a career 45, Freddie Galvis is a career 45, Jose Iglesias. And that's what I expected out Cronenworth, but yeah, had to move him into the top 100 before he graduated to show that, no, this guy's hitting well enough that you should consider him an everyday player. That's what I think he'll be going forward. Yeah, he slowed down a little bit the last few weeks, but uh, so he ends his rookie season slashing 285, 354, 477 with uh, 15 doubles, three triples, four homers, three stolen bases. So pretty good shot at the NL Rookie of the Year award. I think it would be the first Padre since uh, Benito Santiago. Wow. So an- another guy, yeah. There's a lot, a lot of that as, as a Padre fan. You go, yeah, first since... And you got to count way back, way back. You go, wow, it's been that long. (laughs) The second guy on your list, he's played in the big leagues pretty considerably for the last couple of years. But I think he he may have actually graduated from Prospectum sometime during the 2018 season. And that's Framber Valdez, who has had perhaps, I think he said the best season of any Astros pitcher. He's made 10 starts, 70 innings, struck out just shy of 10 per nine while walking just over 2 per 9, had a 3.57 ERA, but a 2.85 FIP. And as I'm going through looking at the Astros rotation, prepping for some of this playoff preview content that we have coming up, he's he's pitched better than Zach Greinke has all year. Now, where where is he on your radar entering the season? Yeah, so he he's probably the probably the best known guy on this list. He was the best known guy just because he had been up and down and you know, he was when he signed with with the Astros, he was considered a pretty good prospect. But going into the season, they had a healthy Justin Verlander, Zach Greinke, Lance McCullers Jr. coming back, Jose Arquiti, who was really good at the end of last season. They also had uh they had acquired Austin Pruitt, who was kind of a swing man, but who a lot of people were saying he looked like he had the edge for that that number five spot. They were also moving Josh James back to the rotation, who I think they really I think they really wanted to get a look at what he can do after what he did out of the bullpen last year. So Valdez was kind of buried in that way, but he was also in line to probably be the, the only lefty in that bullpen. But still, kind of buried, you know, behind you know Ryan Presley, and they have, uh, you know, they had Roberto Osuna and a couple other guys. So nobody was really thinking of Framber Valdez, one one of the best starting pitchers in in the American League, you know. And at the end of the season, there's a possibility he can get the second game of the playoffs, or at least piggyback with with their kitty. And then heading into 2021, he's a lock for that rotation, and they're going to need him. And so if you're looking, at, if if you're looking at a guy who is entering his second second full big league season, his age 27 season, putting up those numbers. That's that's pretty darn good right there. Yeah, I'm, I went back and looked at where I had Valdez as a prospect. And in 2017, I had him ranked 17th in the Astros system, sitting low 90s, like 90, 94 with a plus curveball, which is closer to what he has been this season. Then the, the following year, I was down on him. He was towards the bottom of the list. Still on there as a 40 future value, which is what I've got, like the consistently rostered middle relief type guys bucketed as. Not the guys who are optioned up and down, but the guys who are, are good enough to hold a roster spot. And then in the report from that year, he was only 88 to 92. So over the last two years, he's had a velo spike to the point where he's parked at 93 and like, you know, obviously touching 95 or six on occasion. And his curveball is one of the better ones in all of baseball, like you know, based on spin rate, based on your visual evaluation of it. And really what it's helped him do is generate a ton of ground balls. He's run ground ball rates in excess of 60% 
each of his three big league seasons, and the last two he's thrown 70 innings. So, yeah, I think at this point, the Astros rotation, I guess, with Verlander having Tommy John as late as he had it, and, like, Granky getting up there in age, and, gosh, who else might even be around next year? Like The other guy that was in the pitcher was, that was possibly going to help out this year was Forrest Whitley, who's their top pitching right. prospect. So you kind of had to, you know, think about him as well. At some point, he can help out. So, you know, Valdez was not really in the discussion at all. But yeah, he's he certainly is... I forget how they have their... You probably know this off the top of your head better than I do. Is he and Granky are going to go game one and two in some order, I assume. Yeah, it sounds like they haven't decided yet, but they, they could piggyback him with Urquidy. But, I mean, he's not... He, he's been going seven innings quite often, six and seven innings consistently. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's getting a lot of ground balls, although he does have some big strikeout games as well. If I had to guess, I'd say that they the Astros would bullpen Christian Javier in the wild card round. But yeah, they have to they probably have to do it with somebody else too. Urquidy has pitched pretty deep into games. But yeah, I'm that's a thing that we can talk about in a second. The third guy on your list is Jordan Romano with Toronto, who at one point was a a rule five pick. And I think the word coming out of Toronto is that he is gonna throw like a sim game or a bullpen and be ready to throw in the playoffs. But yes, he has also kind of come out of nowhere and added five miles an hour worth of velocity to his slider this year and had a two-tick bump on his fastball. Yeah, and you mentioned Valdez and, and kind of his, his his rise. And, and I think with a lot of these guys, at some point, they kind of fall off the radar where you go, oh, oh yeah, I remember that guy. We were talking about him a couple of years ago. And so Jordan Romano was a, a Rule 5 pick of the Texas Rangers. So, you know, they obviously liked him enough to take him in the Rule 5 draft. He wasn't good. He wasn't ready. But, you know, they... I, I'm sure they regret not holding on to him and burying him in that in that bullpen. They gave him back to the Blue Jays. And so fast forward to the next season and you go, oh, that's why the Rangers picked him in the Rule 5 draft. And, and there was there was some buzz in summer camp. You know, everybody was talking about Romano, how good he looked. Of course, we had no way of knowing. So I think by the time the season started, you kind of knew he was going to be a, a guy. But, you know, he had, he came up last year and did okay. But nobody knew how good he was going to be where he was their closer. He had finally kind of, I think he had taken control of that role over Anthony Bass. And then he hurt his hurt his finger. I think he gave up a home run, which is only the second run he had given up all year in like 14 and a third inning. Uh, he was dominating. Everybody was talking about him. Just a character out there on the mound. And, you know, one of those guys where you look at him, you go, yeah, that's, that's, that's a fun guy. You can't wait to see him closing out a game in the ninth inning. And then he gets, you know, he gets hurt and he's been out ever since. And so, again, it's, it's interesting how these guys fall off the radar and then they come out and it seems like they're coming out of nowhere. But that's what makes baseball so much fun. And that's why I like, you know, this, this kind of stuff here. Nobody's, nobody's talking about him. Yeah. He was the, th- the third pick in the 2018 Rule 5, which he looks like he's got a shot to be the best one of this group at this point. Like if you go through and look at Richie Martin, Sam McWilliams, Riley Farrell, Connor Joe, Reed Garrett, Travis Bergen uh, was also picked in this Rule 5 and was traded to the, the Diamondbacks for Robbie Ray at the deadline. And Elvis Luciano was the was drafted in this Rule 5 as well. He was 19, or he was 18 when he was drafted and turned 19 in February. The following February, it was like the first player born in the 2000s to debut in the majors. But like, yeah, the report from, from when Romano was Rule 5 was he's 91-93 and throws strikes with an average slider and changeup. And just based on this, the Rangers pitching situation at this time, he seemed like an innings eater who they just sort of picked up for free, who was an upgrade, who was going to throw a rebuilding team's innings just as a better alternative to what they had in the org already. And yeah, he got spit back to Toronto and then had a huge velo spike and it seems like he's going to play a high leverage role in the Blue Jays bullpen now in a in a playoff series. Yeah, it look it looks like uh, his fastball velocity came up 2 miles per hour yeah. from from when he was with the team last year and his slider velocity is up about four and a half miles per hour. I'm not sure if it's a totally different pitch, but he's also through that 60% of the time, which is interesting, which is the thing I've noticed a lot more often with some of these relievers that dominate. They just they have the they have their pitch. It doesn't matter if it's a breaking ball or what whatever it is, and they just throw it and throw it and throw it. And they know that the hitters can't hit it. They're not too worried about is this an injury risk. It just seems like if they find that pitch, they're sticking with it. 
Okay, so the next guy that we're going to talk about is Dylan Moore with Seattle, who I know teams around baseball asked about around the trade deadline and were told uh, no. <laughs> so it seems like Dylan Moore has a home in Seattle as, again, like one of these multi-positional players. Yeah, it's interesting in that he is a guy who who signed with the Mar- he signed as a, he signed a major league contract with with the Mariners before the 2019 season um, as a, as a minor league free agent had never been in the majors before had a few good seasons in the minors a lot of walks there was some you know it, it looked like he was a versatile guy who had an idea what he was doing at the plate a little bit of speed he had 37 stolen bases way back in in a ball. He had a season with uh, 11 homers, or let's see, you know, that's 14 homers in, in, uh, in 2018 being between double A AA and triple A. But again, it looked like he was a depth guy, even on the Mariners roster. Depth guy can play a lot of different positions. Of course, on this Mariners roster, there was a lot of opportunity there, and, he, and he's a guy who took advantage of it before a season ending concussion he was slashing 255 358 496 with eight homers 12 stolen bases so i know this is not how it's supposed to work but if we're to uh multiply that by 2.7 which is the the pro rate number to get from 60 games to 162 i think that's like a 21 homer 32 stolen base season uh, which is pretty good and he's a guy who was who was pretty much locked into their the number two spot in their lineup, and he was bouncing around a lot, still second base, some right field, left field, but he he can play all over the place. But I can't see him not not starting two thousand one in that same spot. Yeah, I agree. The Mariners seem to really really like him. If you continue to look at him as an outfielder, at least in part, then they're even more clogged out there than. People, I think, in Seattle have been discussing around Mitch Haniger and you know some of the pieces like Kyle Lewis emerging, etc. Jared Kelnick being just about ready, it would seem. So what Dylan Moore ends up doing, I think, is probably going to be more on the infield if they can help it. I think that he that Shed Long needs to come out swinging next year to make sure that Moore just doesn't grab the everyday second base job. But yeah, this is the Moore peaked as a prospect. I mean, he was only ever on. A list or two uh, in the history of like me working at Fangraphs, he was on the Braves 2017 prospect list, way towards the bottom, as you know, a low end utility player. So if we're talking about Cronenworth projecting as the high end, a lefty bat, etc., like all of those traits that are just more valuable to have around during the course of a game when you want to pinch hit or platoon. Moore was like the righty version of those. And now looking back at his minor league numbers, he is the classic. Like we we undervalued this guy because the tools weren't crazy. He always performed. It wasn't until that 2017 season when he had a below average offensive performance and then bounced back right away. He hopped around Rangers, Braves, Brewers, then the Mariners. That big power breakout in 2018 at AAA came at, I think, Colorado Springs where his age combined with the hitting environment there just meant I was just like, nah, I don't buy it, but I shouldn't have. So he looks like a pretty good player. And then the last guy we want to talk about so we can move on to the postseason stuff is Devin Williams, who is arguably, you know, along with Cronenworth is right there as the NL Rookie of the Year. He has kind of supplanted Josh Hader in the Brewers bullpen in the Hader role where Hader is now the closer and Williams is the guy who comes in in the sixth or seventh or eighth innings and will give you four, five, six outs and is just has been totally dominant. He struck out 53% of the hitters he's faced this year. Where were you coming into the season on him? Because for me, he was still oft injured prospect in his mid-20s who had had like multiple surgeries. Yeah, there was, I think he was an interesting guy, but there was no reason to just automatically plug him into to the projected bullpen they had some needs in 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 the setup role for hater although Corey Knebel was close to coming back uh you know they got Corbin Burns and Freddie Peralta who still had not committed to the rotation uh Brent Suter you know same with him he had pitched really good out of the bullpen last year weren't sure if they were going to use him in the rotation or not so they had some spots but there was he was part of a group of guys that were you know that we're going they were, they were fighting for middle relief jobs and so once he was in there it was just a matter of 
okay, scoreless inning, scoreless inning, a bunch of strikeouts, scoreless inning, and then just slowly start moving up. It didn't take him that long, but he emerged pretty quickly. And then from that point where he is now, where it's just like it just never stopped. Just it's unbelievable climb yeah. by by even for, for for a relief pitcher. Yeah, even coming into the year, perhaps there were signs from last season that he was different. He was no he was no longer the fastball breaking ball pitcher that he was in the minors, where he was fastball curveball, trying him as a starter, kept getting hurt. 89 to 93 when healthy with touch of six. And yeah, I thought that he would be fast-tracked in relief. He was basically on the honorable mention section of some of these lists. Like here he is, I'm looking at the 2018 Brewers list and he's in the honorable mention section titled Tommy John Crew that has Drew Rasmussen, who's also in the bullpen, who's had two surgeries, Josh Pennington, who has retired, Nathan Kirby, who's continued to have issues. Like this is just sort of the, the wheel you spin with some of these guys. And Williams has just worked out. But last season in 2019, when he had a cup of coffee over the course of like 13 innings, the changeup was there already. And it was like a failure of my evaluation process that he came into the season ranked as low as he was and still with the breaking balls uh, like written up ahead of his changeup. Just got maybe the best changeup in baseball and maybe the best one we've seen in a while. So let's transition to playoff picks. The seeds are now set. They were set about an hour ago from recording. Do you have any feelings about, before we get into the picks, about the eight seed in the NL, about all three of those teams backing into into nothing today? Like, had any of the Giants, Phillies, or Brewers won, they would have locked up that eight seed and said they all lost and the, and the Brewers are in that eight seed by default. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew this was, was, there was a chance this can happen. It, w- it would have been cool if, if, you know, all 16 teams were were above above 500 to the I think the Brewers fit, finished under 500 didn't they they did the yeah. game under yeah so I, there was a good chance that was going to happen and and I don't think they're going to have much of a shot against the team that they're going to play but yeah this is a weird season and I think I'm happy that that are 16 teams in the playoff and then, and we had this crazy day where there was pretty much at least half of these teams playing for you know even if it was just a maneuver for a seating um, and there was a bunch of teams playing for right. a spot they got for eliminated something. today yeah all right, so Dodgers are the one, Milwaukee is the eight. Who you got? This is an easy one for me, and I love the Dodgers. First, I got to tell you here, I'll, I'll remind you in case you didn't know this, Eric. I was the only staff member who had 100% in last year's staff predictions for, wow. for the playoffs, man. So that means I'm going to be really bad this year. But <laughs> <laughs> I was good last year, and I think I started with one team. I go, it was kind of a hunch. The team I think is going to win it all is the Nationals, and then I then I kind of go from there. And so I, I won't give it away right now, but I think that there is a particular team that I think is just is just their year. And so I'm going with the Dodgers. I I love their team, you know, in 162 games, but their depth was you can just see how how much the depth helped them even in a short season. There's a lot of guys on that team that didn't even have great years. They were they, they weren't as good. They didn't even have average seasons. There wasn't a, there was a few guys that have had better than expected seasons, but there's just so many options on that team. They all they're consistently with good starting pitching, and then they just have so many options in the bullpen and and their lineup that you just mix and match the right guys. And these guys are all even even some of them are still kind of a young team, but they just they have that postseason experience, and you could just tell they just know how to win. And these guys just kind of cruise from the beginning of of the season. So my pick is the Dodgers. I'm taking the Dodgers too, pretty easy. I think that Milwaukee maybe could have had a puncher's chance had Corbin Burns not gotten hurt. Him and Woodruff pitching two of the three games, I think gives you a, a shot, especially with the, the Brewers back end bullpen being as good as it is. But no more Cor- Corbin Burns means that they have to piggyback like Suter with Peralta or something like that, or Lindblom and Suter. And I just think that's suboptimal. So I'm taking the Dodgers. How about the four five Padres Cardinals? Yeah. Padres, I think the Cardinals, you know, as a Padre fan, I'm looking at some of these potential teams that might might slot in at five. And I'm and I'm like, oh, man, you know, even Marlins got six to Alcantara, Pablo. They got, oh, I do not want to face the Reds. That's Bauer, Castillo, Gray. Yeah. You know, Philly's got, a, you know, even the Phillies with with Nola up, up front. I think the Cardinals were the team where I was like, eh, I, I, I think we can beat them, even though that's still a pretty strong one, two. If you go Flaherty. 
and either you know Wainwright and then Kim in, in game three possibly. But their bullpen is it, it can be a little shaky. They've been they've been better towards the end of the season. And then that lineup doesn't scare me. Although as a Padres fan, we've been in the playoffs twice since they moved to Petco. And I think the Cardinals whipped them both times. Cardinals whipped them in 1996 in the postseason. So <laughs> there's a little bit of that that I think of. But I, I think even without the certainty of Lament and, and Clevenger, I do like the Padres' chances to advance over the Cardinals. Yeah, me too. Flaherty has not quite been himself all year and was not in his last starts leading up to the playoffs. And both of these teams are sort of the walking wounded with the pitching staffs with Dakota Hudson and Carlos Martinez going down here recently. John Gant too for uh, St. Louis. And you mentioned, yeah, the Cardinals bullpen is, is scary to me. Ryan Helsley, Genesis Cabrera, Alex Reyes, they all have monster stuff. Gio Gallegos looked better today. But all four of those guys at any time can like walk a couple hitters in a row and all of a sudden it's scary and there's traffic and I, I just, I like the matchups in San Diego's bullpen better. So I'm going to take them as well. How about the 3-6 Cubs, Marlins? Uh, I'm going to take the Cubs. Marlins are a great story, uh, obviously. And, and I think they are are scary just because of that 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 trio of, of starting pitchers that they can throw at you. Sixto has been, been a little inconsistent, so you know you don't know exactly what you're getting. The bullpen is okay, not not great. And then the lineup isn't, you know, they got a couple guys that, that can that can hit, but I'm not scared of that lineup. The Cubs have all that experience. They got you Darvish, they got Cal Hendricks, Craig Kimbrell come around the last the last couple weeks. Again, a, t- a team that's been pretty deep. And I think, you know, it just kind of listening to Cubs fans all the time, it's just like you you would think they're in last place sometimes, but they're just you know, the the expectations are so high because of, of all those stars on that team. And Javi Baez didn't have a great season. Bryant's been playing hurt. Uh, but when it comes down to it, they got just so many guys who, who have done it before. And I think the foundation with that, with those first two starters, and then John Lester in game three, of course, and, and enough mm-hmm. pitching to, to uh, bridge the gap to Jeffers and, and Kimbrell. Yep, I'm with you. The Cubs, I mean, I think some in some ways these teams are pretty similar. The strength of the pitching staff's are both rotations, but I just think the Cubs lineup is much, much better, especially we don't know what's going to happen with Starling Marte, who took 95 off the dome today. So all the best to him. He's had a rough year. And I just don't think the Marlins bullpen is very good. I think it's incredible they've got like Boxberger and some of these guys out of nowhere. And I am kind of intrigued by the idea that they could just cut bait and be like, all right, Jorge Guzman, Eduard Cabrera, let's go. But I don't think they're going to do that. And I think the Cubs are going to out hit them and win this series. How about the 2 7, Atlanta and the Reds? So typically I, w- I look at a team like the Braves and I see like that's that stepping stone, like they were a young team and they're getting closer and closer and then they made the postseason and they didn't quite get there. And the next year is when they're going to take another step forward. However, with this matchup, um, I, they're facing the team I, I think that nobody wants to face right now. And that's just because the starting pitching is so good with Bauer, with Luis Castillo, with, with Sonny Gray. And, and those those guys getting the ball to their, their last couple of relievers who are also really good. They got Archie Bradley and, and Iglesias and a couple other guys. That, you know, of course, Amir Garrett. Lucas Sims has been really good this year. And then, you know, the X Factor is going to be their offense. And they got so many guys that underperformed this year. And I think a team like that, they get they get to this point and they go, wow, we, we got a new life. We sucked this year and and we have a really good chance to, to advance here in the postseason. So I think a couple of these guys that have done it before, you know, can, can step up and, and beat a team like the Braves who their rotation is, you know, they're beat up as well. Max, Max Fried is, is supposedly going to be okay. Left his last start with a sprained ankle. And then two, three, you're going with with kids. You're going with probably Kyle Wright, probably Ian Anderson. So I don't trust them. I I mean, they're still, you know, they're still a team that they've been getting to that point where they have, they just know how to win. And that's why they've won 35 games this year, even though they've had all these this pitching trouble. They still won all these games, and they got super talented guys like Acuna and and Freeman and Osuna. But uh, it's going to be tough against the Reds. I think the fact that all of the Reds' rotation pieces are right-handed is bad news for Duvall and Albies and Riley and some of the guys who I think could help Atlanta slug their way to victory. But I do think that asking Freed, who's been dinged, and then the young guys, Anderson and Wright, like if this gets to a game three and it's Kyle Wright 
I have no confidence in, in the Braves. So I'm taking Cincinnati as well. All right, let's blaze through the AL. Rays, Jays. I think the Jays are a fun, fun team. And I think it's just it's just not their not their time. I think the Rays are just kind of like the Dodgers. They're just so deep. And you yeah. go, who, who, who are the stars on this team? Who are the guys that stood out and had these great seasons? And there's, you can't really find one. I mean, the starting pitching is great, of course. Snell, Snell Glasnow, and Morton, that's got to be scary to, to face off against. And then yeah. in the bullpen, you get all those big arms. But, you know, they've lost half of their bullpen, and they still just throw guys out there that get everybody out. And so I think, yeah, I, I think they are a team that's going to take the next step and I don't think the, the Blue Jays are going are gonna to give them much trouble. Here's where we, I think, will f- start to disagree on some stuff. The two-seed Oakland versus the seven-seed White Sox. Yeah, this is going to be a tough one here. This is going to be... Yeah. This is, this is, and, and I think, again, same thing for me. The, the A's are that team that's it's been good for a while, and they're progressing, progressing, and, and you can just tell. They just know how to win. They just know how to win now, and you look at that lineup and you go... Chris Davis wasn't good this year. A couple guys have been hurt. Yep. Frankie Montas wasn't good this year. He was great today. I think he had 13 strikeouts, but he, he hasn't been good all year. Um, they, got a, they got a really good closer. They lost Matt Chapman. Marcus Semyon hasn't really Marcus slugged Semyon, since his, yeah. he's returned from, I guess, what was it, an oblique? Yeah, he's, he's been out a while. And so, yeah. you know, they're relatively healthy aside from Chapman. But, you know, so, so is that ability to you just know how to win games and that's how you do so well in the in, in the regular season and now when you're when you're in the playoffs and you're facing off against one of the more talented teams in the league and uh maybe not maybe not deep enough for a seven game series with with that rotation because after Jolito and Keuchel um you don't really know who you got after that but the the bullpen is stacked as well um yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick I'm gonna pick the White Sox um, and I think there's there's a chance that Eloy Jimenez might miss the series with his injury, but I think they have plenty of firepower and that that bullpen Garrett Crochet in there it's it's like they added freaking um, Billy Wagner at at the end of the season it's like and they got they got Aaron Bummer back Evan Marshall both of those guys came back from injuries they look they look pretty good so I think they're in pretty good shape. I'm taking the White Sox too. I like the situational pieces that they have at the at the end of the game. Without Eloy in the lineup, it's a little harder to find that big time bench bat that I think that they could have at the end of games uh, were he to return at some point. Because James McCann is the personal catcher of like most of that pitching staff, which means that Grandal has to play first base or DH, which means that Jose Abreu is doing the other one, which means Edwin Encarnacion ends up as like a guy with pop on the bench and Oakland. In some of these situations, Oakland is going to be jobbed by like playoff bullpen management where Jake Lamb starts and then he ends up facing a lefty in a big spot in like the fifth inning and they pinch hit for him with Pinder. And then later in the game, the A's are either going to have to deal with Pinder facing righties or pinch hit for him with VML Machine. And all of that is worse than Edwin and Encarnacion taking bench at bats. And so like it's little stuff like that that I think is going to push the White Sox over the edge. All right, 3-6, Twins and Astros. I'm going with the Twins here, and the Astros are, are are scary just because they're a team that they've won it all. They still got all those guys, and they've gotten even though they've they've had so many injuries, you know, their bullpen has been a little bit better. The rotation is kind of you know they can they can throw three good starters there, um, and they still got all those all those superstars in, in the lineup. It doesn't matter how they did during the season. They've they've all been there before. However, the Twins are again, it's a team that's ready to take that that next step. And they're going to go out there with with uh Jose Barrios, Kenta Maeda. I'm sorry, Maeda's going to start the first game and then they're going to go Barrios and, and Pineda. Bullpen is very deep. Lineup is very deep as long as Donaldson is back. He missed the last couple games with with uh with an injury. But yeah, I think I think they're ready to take the next step. I think everybody wants the Astros to lose, and and uh, <laughs> I think they are going to lose. I think Houston's rotation is really deep. I think it's five deep, and it just doesn't matter in this format. I think if they got to the second round, they would be sneaky. But I don't think it's going to happen. I for the reasons you mentioned, I'm I'm also on Minnesota. All right, last one, the four five game one is going to be Garrett Cole versus Shane Bieber. It's Cleveland versus New York, the New York Yankees. 
I'm going with the Yankees and uh, similar to what I said about the Cubs, it's, it's like you would think they're in last place with like, with with the negativity of the Yankees, but they are that team. It doesn't matter how many injuries they have; they just keep plugging away and and winning games. And all they had to do was get in the playoffs. And you got Garrett Cole pitching pitching game one. Tanaka's a good gives you a good chance in game two. And then whether it's Jordan Montgomery or Jay Happ, you still got a good back of the bullpen with with Chapman and, and Zach Britton. And so I think Shane Bieber is going to give them trouble. I don't think they would lose game two or game three. So I'm going to, and I think if, if they can beat Shane Bieber, which which they they will have a good chance with Garrett Cole on the mound, if they beat Shane Bieber, the they got it. There's the Indians have no chance to come back. I think that Garrett Cole weirdly gets a little bit. He's sort of getting a pass by playing this game on the road rather than in the Yankee Stadium band box where he's had some problems giving up dingers. But I'm going to take Cleveland in this series. I think that these, the style of the Yankees pitchers, which are often like the up-in-the-zone four-seam style, I think Cleveland's lineup is especially good at punishing those guys. You've got Cesar Hernandez and Jose Ramirez, who just are less likely to be beaten by pitches at the top of the zone than your average hitter at the top of the order. I don't think Frankie Lindor is like maybe not 100%, like he just hasn't hit with the same type of pop. Carlos Santana starting to round into form, and then Cleveland can really match up nice at the later games. They've got three catchers I think they're going to carry on the roster, which is going to let, and all the platoon outfielders that they have sort of let them upgrade a catcher at bat late in the game without the fear of someone getting dinged and them having to have someone weird catch, which when I say that carrying three catchers is is something more teams should consider doing. I get I get a lot of pushback that is like, yeah, really? Like, can't you just hit for the guy? What's the likelihood that the second catcher is going to get hurt? But like, watch the games, folks. These these dudes take an absolute beating. So I like the idea of carrying three catchers. But yeah, so those are our first round playoff picks. Check out the site for our picks for the entirety of the postseason. For Jason Martinez, I am Eric Longenhagen. Thanks for joining us on another edition of Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the show, or if you enjoy site features like the roster resource depth charts and playing time projections that Jason Martinez keeps meticulously updated, consider purchasing a Fangraphs membership for yourself or for a friend. You can impress them with blazing fast page times thanks to ad-free browsing. We will return with plenty of playoff baseball analysis following plenty of playoff baseball. Until then, thank you for listening.